risen King. You are the risen That's why we're here today. He's seated in majesty. Seated in majesty. You are the risen King. Lord, we are here today because you are no longer in a grave. You are seated at the right hand of your Father, and we are ready and willing to do your will. To you be the glory, both now and forever. In your name we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. You may be seated as you bless him. Thank you so much for coming to church. How many enjoy worshiping in the house of God? Amen. How many enjoy our worship team? Give it up for the worship team. We have a new brother up there, Brother Anthony, doing good. Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. I want to speak about what has happened in Afghanistan, the Christian persecution there and around the world, and the subject will be, the world is not worthy of them. Somebody say, they're not worthy of them. Amen. They're not worthy of them. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. Like you've heard of with sports, the hall of fame, you know, all of these wonderful sports stars and what they've done. This is the hall of faith. You as a Christian can go back over the stories summarized by the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul. And at the end of Hebrews 11, we see that not every story of faith had a good outcome in the worldly sense. So when you hear the stories of faith like Moses splitting the Red Sea, that has a good outcome. It's like, man, that's cool. The, the Red Sea was split. Everybody was happy that day. Or you hear about Daniel in the lion's den. He went into the lion's den. They didn't eat him. He came out. How many know that's a good day? But at the end of the hall of faith, the author, Paul, begins to tell stories where it didn't always end well for those who had faith. In other words, he wanted us to avoid the assumption that living for God always has good outcomes according to the world. The outcomes are always great according to God and his kingdom, which will last forever. And how many believe we're going to be with God a lot longer than we're on this earth? Amen. So it's always good between us and God and for our eternal eternal rewards, but he wanted us to know, Paul, at the end of this hall of faith, that not everybody makes it out of a lion's den. Some get eaten by lions. That not everybody gets to get away from their attackers. Some of them got sawed in two. Let's take up this story here at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Let's say this together. One, two, three. The world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. 
Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And that ending right there is that none of them got to experience the born-again experience with Jesus Christ coming on the inside, regenerating them and making them new. That's why there was a place called Abraham's bosom that they had to go when they died until Christ was in the ground after his crucifixion. And then the Bible says in Ephesians, he led captivity captive. He brought them out into heaven, into his Father's presence. And then Ephesians says he gave gifts to men. That's at uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So the Old Testament saints, though they died in Christ, in righteousness by faith, though they hadn't met him yet personally, had to wait in Abraham's bosom to be delivered and brought out. And Abraham's bosom was a good place. It wasn't bad, but to be brought into the presence of their father. That's why it says they hadn't received it. Everybody was waiting for it. And so now the Christians of that time can say, we have been born again just like Abraham has been born again. The only difference is Abraham was born again from the process of going from Abraham's womb, um, a, you know, his place of paradise, which they named it after uh, Abraham, a, after um, uh, Abraham's bosom, not Abraham's womb, which both bosom and womb seem to be awkward to be saying after a man. But anyways, uh, they came from Abraham's bosom and went into the presence of the Lord. We're born again. We're now born again on earth, and we dwell here until we go into his presence. Now, having understood that, what was he saying in verses prior that's applicable to us? Is that what I was mentioning before, that we don't always win? We don't always see the lion's mouth shut. We don't always get to escape. And I remember hearing these kinds of stories from missionaries. For example, there were some that were bringing Bibles over into China, and they were crossing over, and the guards were uh, looking for the Bibles in the cars, and they couldn't find them, though the Bibles were right there in front of them, and they let them go. And so missionaries, like, I've heard those stories. And so they assumed that either the, the soldiers were Christians and then, you know, just pretended they didn't see it and let them go, but wanted to make it look like to their supervisors they were doing their job, or they simply were blinded to the Bibles and set them free. But it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you're caught with the Bible. Sometimes you're caught. That's what he's saying. Give you another example. Billy Graham and others would tell stories about miraculous deliverances by angels. Billy Graham wrote a book about angels and talked about how angels would come and do things on behalf of God's people. How many believe in angels? And we actually hear about these kinds of stories in the book of Acts where they were locked up and an angel sets them free and they get out. But there's also stories where they died in prison. Paul was beheaded by Nero. So there, there was a time he was delivered by angels, and then there was a time he wasn't delivered, and he was beheaded. What we have to understand as Christians is that we cannot allow our faith to be shaken by the circumstances. We have to be like the apostles, the prophets, and the saints of old and say, whether by life or by death, I'm serving God. To him be the glory. So whether or not, and if you remember in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said that very same thing. We're not bowing down. And whether we are saved or not today, let it be known to you, we ain't never going to bow. And that needs to be our heart. And we have to be people of faith. We have to be people that can believe in deliverance. Because, listen, if we ever 
get so discouraged that we say it is what it is and we give up our faith, we are no longer going to have the spirit of encouragement to give to others. And so we are, as Christian people, to have hope and optimism. But we are not supposed to be uh, naive in our optimism. They had did a survey once, um, I believe it was of Holocaust survivors and of, of survivors of other concentration camps or similar situations, but it might have just been um, the Holocaust, so please don't quote me on the exact place of the study, but it was during World War II, and those who had suffered tremendous discouragement and tremendous pain and torture, and they were uh, surveying the survivors, and they started asking them questions on how did you make it when others didn't, because there was people who died of broken heart, loneliness, suicide during those times, and they wanted to know how they survived. Out of this study that I remember hearing is that they found out that they had realistic optimism. Everybody say realistic optimism. And so they talked about the ones who were locked up that had unrealistic optimism, and those were the ones who didn't make it. They got their hearts crushed, and they either killed themselves or they died of that broken heart depression. And they gave examples like this. The ones who just got arrested and would start to say, well, 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 listen, uh, we've gotten arrested, but hang on. I hear the Americans are coming. The Allied forces are coming. We won't be here very long. Those who had to endure multiple years weren't able to hold on because they had a naivety to their hope. Their hope was based in something of a timeline, something that had to happen according to their plan. And when they weren't out by that time, they suffered heartbreak. The same thing was around the Christmas time, that, that they would say to themselves, well, this Christmas, we'll be back home this Christmas. And yes, it's good to be optimistic, to, to hope that things will change, but because they were so naive in their hope, when Christmas came and they were still locked up and still watching their friends die of starvation, it was too much for them. Are you listening to me? If you have unbridled or unrealistic hope not grounded in something, that can lead to heartbreak. But the Bible Bible says that there's a hope that will not disappoint us. There is a hope that will not let us down because it goes beyond the scope of our human limitation. But it has to be grounded in God's word because hope in itself, hope in itself is an empty bucket. But hope in Jesus Christ will never run dry. You have to be realistic when you're facing the troubles that the people of Afghanistan are facing now. Let me give you a few more examples. One with Corey Timboon and my wife. Holy Spirit, help me. Let me start with my wife. Nancy, wave your hand over there. God bless my wife. I love her. We were newly married, taking flights, traveling, jet-setting the world as a young couple. Now we have six kids, and we travel in a 15-passenger van. We probably could have afforded plane tickets during this uh, drop of prices, but we still chose the 15-passenger van because once you get there, what are you going to have to get? You're going to have to rent a 15-passenger van anyway. And so by the time you get there, drop off your stuff, get in the plane, get off, get the 15-passenger van, start driving. I said, ah, well, let's just drive the 15-passenger van. Anywho, one of the first times we were flying together, we had a situation where the pilot came over the airplane and says, we're having some trouble with our landing gear right now. want you just to be, be, be seated. Everybody take it easy. We're going to try to figure this out. How many know that that was uh, not the thing I wanted to hear that day? You're 30,000 feet up in the air. You don't want to hear you're having problems with landing gear. 
And I'll never forget this. And I've now become friends with a commercial pilot. And I talked to him and I asked him, what would this pilot have been doing in this situation? I'm going to tell you. And he says, I have no idea what he was doing. But this is what I saw. And God is my witness. I saw the pilot leave the cabin and walk out with the crowbar. That's what I saw. <laughs> I don't know. I asked the pilot, I said, what could he have been doing? And, I, and he said, nothing. There's nothing he could have done with a crowbar. But it looked like he was going somewhere to the luggage department, maybe trying to do something with a crowbar. Or maybe he just had a stick in his hand. I don't know what, what it was, but that's what I thought I saw. Then eventually he comes back and he says, okay, everything's good. We figured it out. We're landing now. Well, in between that time of when we don't have landing gear, and I think he has a crowbar trying to fix something, to when it got fixed, my wife said she's never seen my face turn so white. My face was just blank white. I mean, it's just like a piece of paper white. It was, it, that's what it looked like. And I started saying to her, we could die. We could die right now. And this is what my wife said back to me. We can't die. There's too many children on the plane. God is my witness. Didn't you say that, baby girl? You see, because my wife had that kind of an optimism that was a little bit naive, and I looked at her and I said, planes crash all the time with babies. <laughs> you know, so my fear was trying to outdo her optimism, but then a little bit of faith, like a mustard seed, I'm not going to say it was a lot, but then a little bit of faith began to come into my heart, I'll be all right, and God began to tell me I'll be okay. And then when he said we're okay, I was like, yes, I had faith. So I think I, think I made it, I think I made it to the finish line with a little bit of faith by the time he got there. But I, I, I'm telling you that to say how many of us kind of have that, that, that naive kind of optimism. Oh, this plane can't go down. There's children on this plane. No, no, planes go down with children all the time. Oh, this can't happen to our country. America's a great country. No, things like we're seeing in Afghanistan can happen to America. Corey Tim Boone was one of the survivors of the Holocaust because she helped hide. She wasn't a Jew, but she helped hide Jews during the Holocaust, and she survived the concentration camps. Uh, some of her family members did not make it. One of her sisters who passed it, passed, wrote uh, one of the most beautiful quotes you'll ever hear, that there is no pit so deep that God is still not there with you. That there is no hole so deep. I, would, I wish I knew it. Somebody look up that, that there's no pit so deep. I want, to, I want us to read it out, that God is still not there, and that sister died. So she's there like Corey Timboon, and she has faith, and she believes God can still be with her, but she died in that, that concentration camp. When someone gets that quote, weighs up their hand, my wife's looking for it. There is no pit so deep, I think is the first part. And what is that next part? There we go. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. That was from her sister, and her sister died in the concentration camp. So Corey Tim Boone got delivered by the Allied forces, I believe, and then she became a missionary. And what was her heart as a missionary? To just go to Hawaii and go to Puerto Rico and to the wonderful, beautiful islands of the world and enjoy missions that way? No. God told her to go to the hardest-hit places of persecution. If Corey Tim Boone was here today, she would be trying to get into Afghanistan. Well, Corey Tim Boone tells the story of what happened to the Chinese church. And she said that the early Christians talked to the Chinese church and said, you will be delivered before communism is ever established here. 
Don't be afraid. The rapture will come. God will do something great in the government even if the rapture doesn't come. And so Corey Timboon talks about when communists came and the church became persecuted and Christians began to get arrested, that there was a great falling away, a great apostasy in the Chinese church during that time of the 50s because they were not equipped to face the persecution to come. She tells the story about being in Africa during the time, and there's still places like this right now where the Christians and Muslims are fighting for dominance. And the Muslims are using the sword of the earth, and the Christians are using the sword of the Bible. And praise God, Africa shall be won and saved. Amen. We're winning in Africa in places like Nigeria. But she went to the Africa, she tells the story of going to one African nation, saying that many of you will die for your faith because I had a word from the Lord to come and prepare you. And she talks about how after she preached in that church, in that nation, that most of all of those Christians were killed because of their faith in Christ. And so that is the kind of reality we have to live with. Did those Christians lack faith, say in China, that they couldn't change their government? Now it's their fault. Did the Christians in Africa lack faith? So now we get into this theological question. Well, if they just had more faith, it would have went well for them. Did Paul lack faith? Paul got beheaded. Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews teaching us about faith. Peter was crucified upside down. You see, I think for us in the faith movement, and I definitely put myself there because I'm not in the doubt movement. Can I hear an amen? I'm in the faith movement. Well, do you believe God wants everybody healthy and wealthy? Well, I definitely don't think he wants us all broke and sick. So yes, I think God would want us to be blessed and healthy. Can I hear an amen? But am I going to preach a gospel that is only going to emphasize the blessings of God, the promises of God being fulfilled, and neglect the things that happen to Christians. No, as a matter of fact, I'm not going to be guilty of only preaching the first half of the hall of faith. I'm also going to preach the second half because there were great Christians that were killed by stoning. There were great Christians that were sawed in two. There were powerful, faith-filled Christians that died by the sword that had to then disguise themselves, live out in the outskirts, and many of them were persecuted and mistreated because, not as a result of not having faith, but because they had such great faith, they could move mountains. And the Bible says the world was not worthy of them. Think about that just for a moment, for the Bible to say that. The Bible said that the world, the people, the culture was not worthy of them. The world is not worthy of us. The Christian church, even in Chicago, your neighbor who persecutes you, your business associate who mocks you, our governors and leaders who put us down, according to these scriptures, are not worthy of you or I or this church being here. God grants us the blessing of our presence to them for a time. And when he allows us to go, even in such dire circumstances, even in such horrendous, nightmarish-like circumstances, it is not for our loss, it is for their loss. They no longer get us. 
they no longer have the privilege of having us around. When Sodom and Gomorrah no longer had the privilege of having Lot and his family around, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? God destroyed it. The very reason why this nation has not yet been destroyed is for the sake of the righteous. We are a blessing to this nation. We are a holding back of the wrath of God and the attacks of Satan. But does God remove his people at a time? Yes. And now listen, one of the ways that God allows his people to be removed is for the people to kill them. Imagine that. Imagine that. This is the Bible speaking now. One of the ways that God allowed Israel to come under his full judgment was for Israel to kill their own prophets. That was God's allowance to happen, to now say, you are no longer worthy of my hand of protection because you have killed the very ones I sent to protect you. Because the Christian church, like the Jewish prophets, can do more for this land than the military can. We can do more for the safety and the peace of this country than the police can. Why? Because those forces cannot change the human heart. But we are here as salt and light to change the human heart. The Bible says, he who wins souls is wise. We are to see souls saved, and when souls are saved, disciples are made, and cultures are changed. And so is it any wonder that the devil deceives, coming from the principalities of the air, is it any wonder that he deceives the people to do his work to steal, kill, and destroy? To take the situation now in Afghanistan, we have to understand Islam. We have to understand what's going on in the Islamic world. Islam was started about five, six hundred years after the death of the last apostle and of Jesus Christ. One man named Muhammad who was seeking God in a cave said that the angel Gabriel came and visited him. But we know, according to Galatians chapter 1, that this was a spirit that deceived him. We can also go to their own records and understand that this spirit oppressed him, choked him, and brought him to the point of suicide. And it was only when he was about ready to kill himself that the spirit began to change its tactics to deceive him. This can be found in their records. And there at that point, he began to listen to this spirit and develop what we now know as Islam. Islam is a combination of Christianity, Judaism, and paganism. The reason why Mecca is a place of, of revere to them, the reason why they revere Mecca is because Mecca was a place for the Arab pagans to place their gods. They chose one god, the god of the moon, Allah, to be their main god. And that god told them to destroy all of the rest of the gods. They had a god for every day of the year in Mecca, uh, uh, in the Kaaba what we now see as that big black box. The stone that they kiss at the Kaaba in Mecca was a stone that the pagans kiss. This is nothing different than idolatry. But you put their practices of prayer, mix in a little Judaism and Christianity, you get Islam. They believe in the prophets of the Old Testament and some in the New Testament, but they deny Christ was crucified. They believe he was rescued and someone else was made to look like him. So that's how they uh, tell the story of the cross. So it's really Allah's deception why Christianity even exists because we, the largest religion, believe Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. And they believe Allah tricked 
the people to think Jesus died, but he was really delivered into heaven and will come back and judge Christians and Jews for not being Muslims. When you begin to look at the Quran, the Quran is a mess of a book. That's not just my words, but literary experts talk about how it is a mess. It is disconjointed. It is almost like the book of Proverbs meets fortune cookies. And you don't know when the writings are coming or the subjects they're addressing, so you need what is known as the Sunnah, which is the tradition of Muhammad, which comes in the Hadiths, the Tafsirs, which are the commentary and in the biography. What I was mentioning to you about the suicidal uh, times of, of Muhammad, that comes from his biography. When you begin to look at the Quran, it's written in basically three stages. The first stage is when he's in Mecca as a minority religious cult leader trying to tell everybody he's a prophet. At that time, the Meccan pagans hated him. So then all that he's writing is basically like, let's get along to you, your religion, to me, my religion, let's all be friends. Then he gets ousted out of Mecca and moves to Medina. There he begins to gather up other disgruntled pagans and gets them to join his religion. And he starts writing the kind of passages that talk about unity and joining together for a cause and jihad and fighting for their religion. When they begin to get back into Mecca and fight for the Kaaba and to have those pagan relics be for them, including that black stone, everything now is about the war, about oppression, and about the things you've probably heard before. It is in that last and final stage that Muhammad dies. He's poisoned by a Jewish woman after he had just conquered their people and taken their women as his concubine sex slaves and their property. When he died, the Quran was not put together. The people of the Muslim, the Muslim, um, uh, the Sunnah, the tradition of the Muhammad, had to bring it together. We then now understand the uh, abrogation that they started to add into the scriptures or the, the principle of abrogation, which basically says what was Muhammad's last things are Muhammad's best things for all the world going forward. So when you talk to a Muslim... And they say to you, if you kill one person, you're guilty of killing them all. And they say, that's why we don't believe in jihad. ISIS is a cult of Islam. What they are trying to do is take the early messages of Muhammad and say, now they are applying in the present. But that's untrue. All of those have been abrogated. Their new covenant or their relative scriptures are the jihad scriptures. And so that's why when we see something like ISIS or we see something like the Taliban, the moderate Muslims here who themselves are confused, just like most people in religions are confused about what they believe, they think that is a differing form of their true faith. But in actuality, that is what Muhammad looked like. Muhammad looked like Taliban. Muhammad looked like ISIS, which, by the way, they don't always get along. Are you tracking with me? So now we get to Afghanistan and the Christians that are there, and we begin to understand what they are now facing, and the two greatest oppositions to Christianity in the world are socialism, communism, dictatorship, put that all together, North Korea-type living and China-type ways of living. So dictatorship, socialism, communism is one way uh, we suffer the most, and the other way is Islam. Now... If you go to the Quran, and I have a book written about um, 
uh, Islam there in the back if you want more information. I'm a starter resource. I don't get into all the depth, though I can give you the books that, that do get into the depth. Uh, here in Surah chapter 5, verse 33 of their demonic book from a false prophet inspired by a demon, it reads... Surely the only recompense of the ones who war against Allah and his messenger and endeavor to do corruption in the earth is that they should all be massacred or crucified or that their hands and legs should be cut asunder alternately or that they should be exiled from the land. Well, that's, aren't you glad you didn't come to hear that this morning? That's demonic. Now what they'll instantly try to do if you meet in an informed Muslim is they'll try to say, we don't agree with that, pointing to ISIS or the Taliban. We agree with this, but only in a context. And how they'll try to describe the context is of our Old Testament. So they will then try to gain favor with you by going to the scriptures of our Old Testament and finding death penalties, drive them from the land scriptures, Joshua and the Canaanite, bring down the walls of Jericho, David killing Goliath type things. There's two things wrong with that. Number one, we're not in the old covenant. How many believe we're in the new covenant? Just number one, we're not there. So if they want to bring up the old covenant and say we're doing something like that, we go, Jesus brought a new covenant by his blood that fulfilled the old covenant. You are trying to do things backwards. That's the first thing, and we would say that to a Jewish person who would want to institute the 613 laws. The second thing is you are not hearing from the true God, and this, what you're doing, is demonic, literally, by definition, on behalf of a demon. So when I go to the Old Testament, what do we take for granted? God is speaking. Now, if God is speaking to Joshua to take the land, can God tell us to take the land? Yes or no? Are you ashamed of Joshua? Do you want Joshua to do some counseling sessions with Oprah Winfrey to make you feel better? Just get along. Stop being so jealous. Stop tearing down nature. No, we are, we are cool with Joshua. How many know David and Goliath was a real story? Somebody got their head chopped off that day. So they'll point to that and say, you guys like head chopping anyway, so what's the problem, Christian? Number one, we're not in the Old Testament. And number two, you're not hearing from God. You're hearing from a demon, and the difference matters. And if they go, well, that's just what you say so. No, our scriptures say so. We'll discuss that. And at the end of the day, you are listening to a demon. You're listening to a demon. Now, having said all of that, do you think the Taliban wants to hear today they're listening to a demon? Do you think they want to hear today that their prophet listened to a demon and was demon-possessed? Do you think they want to hear today what we have to say in this church about their religion? No. So built into their book, built into their hadiths, is now what is known as Sharia law. Sharia law is not like a Ten Commandments. Sharia law is what a jurisprudence, a group of Muslims, call the law of God. Indonesia has their Sharia. Saudi Arabia has their Sharia. Pakistan has their Sharia. So if you're ever thinking there is a thing called Sharia, hand it to me, let me read it like it's a constitution. It doesn't exist. It is a group of Muslims acting as judge and jurors going to the Quran, the Hadith, the Tassirs, the biography of Muhammad, and now making their fatwas, their laws that the people have to live by. So there isn't one thing called Sharia. Are you guys learning something? 
Now the Taliban is going to develop their Sharia, which is different than ISIS's Sharia. And if you study, they've been fighting each other. Why do they have a difference? Why? Because in ISIS, the Islamic state of Syria and so forth, they believe the Caiaphate, or the Caiaphate, or if I could, the, the Caiaphate, thank you, if I could pronounce words. Sometimes English is hard. Arabic, that's a whole other discussion. So they believe they have a Caiaph for the Caiaphate. In other words, they believe they can restore the lineage, how we would say of kings of the Bible. They have Caiaphs. They have leaders. They are restoring it from the time of the last three when they had their Islamic revolution. During their time of, uh, of Muhammad passing, there were three main leaders of Islam that brought world conquest. After that, they started losing, somebody say, the Crusades. There was a lot of problems during the Crusades, but thank God we stopped them. Other nations in China stopped them, different world leaders. So after the first three, it just all goes to their individual nations, somewhat similar to how, how Rome went into all different nations of Europe. The Islamic nations went into places you now see and developed different branches. There are two major branches, Sharia, uh, excuse me, a Sunni and Shiite. Sunni is the major branch of, of Islam. Most of your friends and neighbors are, are Sunni Muslims. That's basically any nation except Iran. Iran predominantly alone is um, what's a Sunni and Shiite. They are Shiite. And the differences between of how they passed on their lineage. Now going in, into Taliban right now, that what the Taliban is basically going to do is make up their own laws and call it Sharia and enforce it on the people. Now what has the Taliban said to us now, what are they saying as, as they want to be our friends? They're saying, hey, we're not going to be uh, the kind of Sharia law. We're not going to make the kind of Sharia laws we did before. We're going to make these other kind of Sharia laws. And, for the, and, and number one, how many even believe that? I don't believe that. And number two, the basis of most Sharia laws are all the same, and they are wicked enough to make you want to pray for that nation today. Can I hear an amen to that? Okay, let me give you my, my uh, other... Let me see here. I have a bunch of Quran verses here. Okay. Uh, Surah chapter 3 verse 90 will probably be implemented as it is in most Sharia ran nations. It's implemented in Saudi Arabia. It's implemented in Pakistan. It's implemented in some ways in Indonesia and other nations. And that is if you apostatize, you can be killed just for that. So here it is. Surah... Uh, chapter 3, verse 90. Indeed, those who disbelieve after their belief and then increase in disbelief never will give, be given repentance, and they are the ones who are led astray. So that's what it says in the actual Quran, that if you now deny, if you are Muslim, and, then, and by the way, they believe children are born Muslims, okay? So anyone that's a child converting to another religion or anyone that's an adult will now be guilty of apostasy and then in the hadith, the records of Muhammad, what should be done to them is not burned alive because in Sahih al-Bukhari, which is where uh, one of their major hadith collections come from, somebody made the mistake of burning alive an apostate. And Muhammad goes, no, 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 no. 
We don't burn alive apostates because that's what God is going to do. He's going to burn them. But what I want you to do is I want you to kill them and um, not burn them. So it says, I would have, so someone came to him and says, Allah, hey, I just saw somebody apostatize. I burned them alive. And he goes, no, no, don't burn anybody with fire. This is Salih Bukhari, volume 958. He said, I would have killed them according to the statement of Allah's messenger. And so what was the way that we were told to be killed in the verses before? To be crucified, to be dismembered. You guys remember when we read that? So don't burn them alive. Crucify them, dismember them, and that's how you're to kill them because whoever changes their religion, you must kill them. That's in their, their records. So once again, when you meet a Muslim that goes, oh my goodness, I don't agree with any of that, that is either, number one, a spiritual nincompoop to their religion. So they're just spiritually unaware of what their own religion contains. Or they have been deceived into thinking that this does not apply. And their best way of saying it will try to be, that was for then, this is for now. But if you are informed as a Christian, how many want to be informed as a Christian? You now can share with them what I have shared with you and say, no, no, no. The verses I am reading to you are not in your Old Testament, your old way. They have not been abrogated, which is their words. These are the last marching orders and the current orders for your people to follow. Hence, Taliban is actually the real Muslims. You're a backslidden Muslim. ISIS is the real Muslims. You're a backslidden Muslims. But how many are thankful for backslidden Muslims? Okay, and so it will change the way you think about it because what do they want you to think about it as? They want you to think they're the extreme ones, I'm the normal one. No, no, and, and both of our religions, because they'll try to, say, try to say the same thing back to you. Well, don't you have like a Westboro Baptist Christians and wasn't there Christians who did the crusades and colonizations and all of that? And, you know, don't you have extremes? You know, somebody blew, blew up an abortion clinic. Okay, so here's the problem when they say extreme versus moderate. Both of us can only be defined by our founders. Theirs is Muhammad, ours is Jesus. How many believe that? Okay, so whether or not you're moderate or extreme for a Muslim is compared to who? Muhammad. And whether or not you're, you're a moderate or extreme as a Christian is compared to who? Jesus. Okay, so let's go through Muhammad. And there, there's lists of this you can find online. Did Muhammad do jihad in war? Yes. So if you do jihad in war, are you extreme? No, you're moderate. You're a normal Muslim. Did Muhammad have sex slaves? And that's what they started doing in, um, in Afghanistan because part of uh, the war booty, what you get out of winning a war when you fight Muslim, what the Muslim gets is the, the, the women as sex slaves. And it's already happened in Boko Haram, and that's a Muslim group in, in Nigeria, and it's happened already in Afghanistan. So when they were taking over some of those cities and villages, they go around and get the women and children and take them as their own, okay? So did Muhammad do sex slaves and sex trafficking? Yes. So if you do sex slaves and sex trafficking, are you a moderate or an extreme Muslim? You're moderate. Does everybody get that? So according to their standard, their own standard, an extreme Muslim would actually be someone who doesn't murder, who doesn't take sex slaves. You, you all get that? That would be the opposite of your founder. So when we talk to a Muslim that's claiming to be moderate, no, you're actually a different version. You're an extreme version, and we're actually happy you are. We're, we're, ha we're extremely happy that you're not like him, okay? Now, uh, let's go to Jesus. Did Jesus practice, let, let's, let's pick one, um, the Crusades. Did Jesus carry a sword and fight people in battle like the Crusades? No, so if you do that in the name of Christ, you would be extreme, right? Yeah. 
Uh, did Jesus practice multiple wives, sex slavery, and uh, having many concubines from the places that he took over? No. So if as a Christian you started taking wives and children and all of that as your sex, as your property, then that would be extreme. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, so it doesn't work. So when you're talking to a Muslim, here's simply what we want to do. Stay gospel-focused, stay on Jesus. But if it goes into the politics of the situation, you need to show them very clearly that these folks are actually smarter and more and well-tuned to what Islam is about than you are. So you could actually say back to them, I trust their version over your version. Because your version is suppressed by my Americanism. You're not able to just say and do whatever you want here as a Muslim. That's their land. They can say and do whatever they want as a Muslim. They, in other words, can take off the mask and say, here we are, deal with it. And I trust that version more. Now, what I would say after that is come to Jesus, who is much better than Muhammad. Muhammad was poisoned by a woman, was put into a grave, turned to dust. Jesus was crucified for our sins, buried and rose again on the third day. Can I hear an amen? Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. The world is not worthy of the Christians of Afghanistan. The Christians of Afghanistan, many of them are asking for your prayers so that they can have courage to preach, not to leave, though I know there are some who want to go. But like the Chinese Christians, the Afghan Christians now are counting their costs. And many of them are choosing to stay because they are taking serious the words of Jesus Christ. And we ought to pray for their deliverance, but we ought also to comfort them in their willingness to lay down their lives for Jesus. So we ought not to shame the martyr, in other words. We ought to encourage them to do what God has called them to do. And let me just say this real quick before we move on from the demonic, uh, as we move on rather from the demonic religion of Islam. Do you notice that Islam is the only other religion that uses the word martyrs, but they use it in a totally different way? Their martyrs blow themselves up, die in battles. Ours dies like sheep led to slaughter. And if you notice, even the language is not the same. Even in our military, we do not consider someone who died in a fight a martyr. Even in a good war, we do not consider World War II uh, heroes martyrs, but they do. And so they there instill into the mind the Christian concept. Because remember, they came five, 600 years after Christianity. They instill into their mind, you die in battle, oh, we feel so much love and compassion and pity for you. But it's actually their choice to fight and to die. Do you get that? And so they bear the name of martyr, but they are not martyrs. They are wicked, evil warlords dying in a wicked, evil war. Are you guys tracking with me? Just wanted to say that. Christianity has true martyrs, people without lifting up sword or weapon, being led asleep to the sheep to the slaughter. And Jesus taught us this. He said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Those are our precious brothers and sisters right now. The world is not worthy of the Christians in Afghanistan right now. These are our precious brothers and sisters in North Korean concentration camps. These are our precious brothers and sisters in China and all throughout the Middle East, Southeast Asia. Even in the democracy of India right now, Christians are being beaten and mistreated. Some of those videos are coming online. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Did you ever know that we as Christians were actually commanded to be like snakes? <laughs> I don't know if you ever thought that, but that's actually true. There are sneaky snakes that are bad, and then there are sneaky snakes that are good. They need to be like sneaky snakes right now and start having underground church. One of the ways that you can start to have underground church is have secret meeting places and signals to how and where you guys will meet. 
the fish that many of you have seen either on bumper stickers or on uh, memes and different things, the fish that has two kind of ovals meeting together was an ancient way for the early church to meet. When you as a Christian would show up to Ephesus or Corinth or one of these cities when we were under oppression, you would go to the marketplace to find Christians. And many of them, like Paul, tent makers working in the, the everyday jobs over there, if you felt like you had a lead or someone that had a pep in their step or a joy and you were wanting to know were you among Christians, you, as you were talking, would make that half oval with your foot like this, and an aware Christian would know what you were doing, hallelujah, and put it the other way and make the sign of the fish. Then you knew you were with Christians, praise God. I, I remember hearing stories like this, even in our day, Lester Summerall and others going to the underground communist churches and meeting with people. God told him to go to uh, the bus station and say hallelujah loud one time, you know, and then someone came up to him and said, oh, you must be a Christian, and then he began to preach with them. Talk about faith. Just imagine doing that right now, showing up in Afghanistan, wanting to find the underground church, and while they're all crowded around just going, hallelujah, okay, who's on my side? Who's taking me home tonight? This is how the underground church has to operate, sneaky, underneath the cover of night, meeting together. The early church met in tombs. That's why a lot of our, our artwork is found in tombs. And even if you trace the prayer to the saints, where it first came from was praying blessings upon the martyrs, and then, of course, it turned into something else. But this is where it came from, meeting in the tombs of those they had buried. Those were their church services, and that's where they would do their art and where they would set up their communion. But you must be innocent as doves. So now time, sometimes people ask the question, can they plan a revolution? I believe they can based on other scriptures, but this is a scripture for those who say we will not fight with arms and we will be sneaky in this culture. So we give our brothers and sisters the permission to break the laws in these nations that come against the laws of God. They must continue to meet. They must meet and keep preaching the gospel even though now it is illegal. And I don't know if about you, but this has a lot of application to us today. Are you guys getting some? Because I've already seen on Netflix in different documentaries, they just came out with one that says, pray the gay away. And listen, now the culture is changing to where if you come home as a young adult and say you're a Christian, your parents are going to cry and say, come back to being what we were. It's already starting to happen that now in this culture that when you call yourself a Christian, your parents may not be happy. Your friends may not be happy. The peer pressure may be against you now, even in America, to be a non-Christian, where before it was a Christian. Come to church on Christmas and Easter, Christers, right? Do these things. Be moral. Where now we're starting to see in the public masses that if you come out as a Christian, that's more detrimental than if you would come out as gay, bi, lesbian, etc., and so we have to be shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves. That's what Jesus commanded. That's what they're doing. Verse 17, be on your guard. So don't be uh, just naive. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Christians are being flogged around the world. This will be implemented in Muslim states because what they have in Muslim states is the clause of mischief. It says it in one of the verses that I read in the original. It basically translates to someone causing trouble. And so this is how, like in Pakistan, where it seems like we have some rights as Christians, what they'll do to persecute the Christian is accuse them of doing something to cause trouble. 
So, for example, if a Christian girl, which Muslims can marry, men can marry Christian women, but uh, yeah, Muslim men can marry Christian women, but Christian men cannot marry Muslim women according to their rules, okay? But even according to our rules, Christians can only marry Christians. How many are happy for that? That's what the Bible says. But you see, as a part of their dominance, Muslims can marry Christians, okay? We're called people of the book, Al-Kitab. We're given a certain status that some Sharia's will uphold others, will have no love for us, they'll call us polytheists. That's a whole other discussion amongst their sharias and how they treat Christians. But Christians, known as people of the book, can have certain, uh, have certain privileges. Well, one of those privileges are, guess what, young ladies, is you can be married off to a Muslim. But here's the thing. If you refuse or your family refuses in a Muslim nation, you are now causing mischief and now can be given beatings, flogs, floggings, lose your property. Do you see how they do that? It's really slick. They do that in Pakistan and other places. They say, well, we'll let you live with us as a demi, as a subcategory of a, of a citizen with us. We'll allow you to benefit us by your free labor economy and work. But whenever we want something from you, we'll take it. And if you don't give it, then we'll say you're doing mischief in the land. As well as if they see that you're converting one of their own, they then will say you're doing mischief, burn the whole church down, come after all the pastors. And even in India, where people think here, oh, the Hindu people, they're vegans, man. They believe in karma. They're such nice people. Have never dealt with the Hindu extremists in northern India and how they treat Christians because they themselves have their anti-conversion laws as well. And once they find out you've converted one of their children, one of their young adults, especially in that, in that sense, they will burn down the whole church. They will take over the church. They will beat the pastors. This is fact. Are you listening to me? And so it says, don't be naive. You can be handed over to be flogged and beaten. Verse 18, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as a witness to them and to the Gentiles. How many know that's probably happening right now? In these different nations that we're talking about, whether it's communism, dictatorship, or it's in the Islamic states, that these Christians are being brought before these leaders. We're hearing the stories all the time and that they have to give their testimonies before them and to leave it all in the hands of God. So God, I'm now a witness to this king. I'm now a witness to this governor. And sometimes we don't think about it like that. We think about it like they're on trial, which is true. They can die. But what is God's purpose out of that? I'm going to have you witness to this head mullah. I'm going to have you witness to this head dictator. I'm going to have you witness to the prison guard today. Now, how many of us like to go witnessing, many of us here, but how many want to witness to the leader of the Taliban today under his authority? That's what Jesus said you got to be ready to do. Tell your witness now in front of the king, in front of the governor, in front of the prison warden that's been beating you all night and says these beatings will stop if you renounce Christianity and say the Shahada, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. We'll stop beating you if you say that. Isn't that something? We need to pray to have faith, to have courage, amen, to have courage. So it says that you'll be brought before these leaders, verse 19. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. Thank you, Jesus. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. How many know he'll never leave us nor forsake us? 
I wish I had the time today to put up the stories of those who have already faced this and has been spared that can tell us how God has given them the words. There's two young ladies from Iran. You can look up their testimonies. Just look up two Christian girls from Iran. I believe it will come up on YouTube. And they talk about how they became Christians because somebody witnessed to them. And then they began to share their faith. Can you imagine this? Under the pains of death or arrest or beating, they began to share their faith and they would hand out Bibles. And they said that eventually the government was coming after them and the government thought that there were hundreds of Christians handing out Bibles because these two were handing out so many. God made them effective. I think they handed out thousands. And the government said, we got to find this whole group. And it was really just two young Iranian Christians. Praise God. Well, eventually they got arrested, sadly, and I don't know if they were getting beaten or just threatened, but God gave them the courage to stand up for their faith, and then they got delivered from their captors. But this one girl, she just the way she tells her story, it's so touching because she said that, that, that she was so afraid she could hardly make the sound of a word. I mean, she, you know, scared, speechless, in other words. But yet, when they began to ask her what she believed, she began to sense the boldness of the Holy Spirit. The words began to come out of her mouth, and she could not deny Christ. She spoke openly about Jesus. Now look at this next part here. I'm going a little bit long. I have more scriptures to go to, but I want to uh, start to apply it to us now because I don't believe this is just for Afghanistan, those places of the world. It's also for us to gather uh, encouragement and to be strengthened to suffer even unto death should it happen here because verse 21 says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And that can happen at any time when we begin to get persecuted. And we know it's already happening over there. Brother, tell us about your brother. Is he really a Christian? Sister, is your brother really a Christian? Child, tell us if your parents still have Bibles in the homes. And I saw this began to happen even in America. Children, tell us if your parents are getting vaccinated. Children, tell us if your parents are CRT-friendly, critical race theory, or if they're racist. Tell on your parents if they voted for Trump. Put it all over TikTok. Hello, somebody. We're already to this point where the boundary lines of family and allegiance to kinship has been removed. Worldview battles are all that matter, or of worldviews are all that matters in the worldview war. You are now in a worldview war, my friends, and I'm sure some of you have already lost friends and family. You will be hated by just every now and then some people. Is that what it says? Every now and then you'll be hated by people. No, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Of course, there'll be some who love you in the church, but on the outside, that's what it will feel like. Everyone will hate you because of Jesus, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, this is where we have to understand that God has mercy and compassion for us, but he doesn't feel sorry for us. Hold that space there and go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 18. Somebody say, stand firm to the end. This is where we have to understand the difference between God's mercy and compassion. Uh, and scroll up just a little bit for me, please, for it says about the cowardly. Uh, thank you. You can just find it for me, brother. It's in Revelation, I believe, either 19 or 20, where it talks about the cowardly. That's another passage on hell. It's not where it mentions the cowardly, though. 
When we see the persecuted church, we only feel a taste of what our Heavenly Father feels, right? I mean, can you imagine what God sees and what God feels when he sees the church? How much compassion do you have when you see the church suffering in those places? How much more so Jesus, the Father, right? Everybody tracking with me? Great love for the persecuted church, but he doesn't feel sorry for them. I know that sounds weird. It's like, but I feel sorry for them. Thank you. It's actually Revelation chapter uh, 21, verse 8. But I want you to understand this. If I had time, you know what? Open up a new tab. I'm going to make time. Somebody say, preach it, preacher. Okay, go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. I spent too much time talking about the demonic religion, Islam, but will you at least learn something that I said there to use it to preach to Muslims? Amen. The old professor came out of me. I got lost in my thoughts up here about that religion. But I want you to see this. He does not feel sorry for them. And I know that almost sounds like it's, it's like if you don't feel sorry for them, then you don't have compassion. No, you can have compassion for somebody but not feel sorry for them. The reason is, and give me one more tab because I, I didn't get a chance to go here. I'm going to go through it quickly. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, is because the Bible says that we're blessed when we're persecuted. The Bible says that we're actually given rewards that those who have not been persecuted will have. So he starts off by saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. How many believe that? You're blessed when you're a peacemaker. But how many believe this as well? Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So does God feel sorry for somebody he's wanting to bless? No, he has compassion, he has mercy, he has love. But he even goes on in verse 11, he says, but there are blessings when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And that's what they're doing in all of these nations. Oh, this person made fun of the prophet Muhammad. They'll kill him in Pakistan just for that uh, testimony alone, even though the Christian may not have ever said it. But by God's grace, I will always say he was a pedophiling, demonic warlord that is in hell right now, okay? But if they even say half of that, or a quarter of that, they are immediately said to have been causing mischief. And if they're accused of that as Christians, they die. So be blessed. You are blessed when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The reason why we call him a pedophile is he married Aisha at six and consummated it at nine. That's historical fact from their own records. Had sex with a prepubescent girl. And the Quran allows sex with prepubescent girls. That's in the Quran itself. Now look at verse 12. Rejoice and what? Be glad. Rejoice and feel sorry for yourself? No, rejoice in what? Be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now go to the Peter passage, please. So when God sees them, he sees them with great compassion, great mercy, but he does not feel sorry for them. God is blessing them. And I know for us, we attach blessings with an easy life. Let's go to Dairy Queen, you know, after this message. I'm blessed, you know. That's how we think of blessings. God thinks of blessings as you being persecuted and standing up for righteousness. You see the difference there? I'm still blessed. Even though they're whipping my back, I'm still blessed. Even though they're taking my property, I'm still blessed. Because great is my reward in heaven. 
Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. This is uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. It's coming to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange when Christians get persecuted. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The only way that I have uh, to explain this to you is almost like a Chicago winter and then you going to Florida on vacation. No one appreciates Florida more than somebody who's been through a January and February in Chicago. By the time you get to Florida, thank you, Jesus, you wonder if there's ever a sun, if you're going to see the sun again. You feel it beat against you. Come on, spring breakers in here. You, you feel the sun, you see the blue skies, you, you put your toesy-woesies in the sand, you let the water come up against you, and you go, oh, man, God is good. Life is good. But what do you do then? You send that picture to your friends suffering in Chicago. February, March, blizzard coming through. Everybody's you know, hunkered down. You know, hey, just thinking about you guys. I know we always do it to each other, don't we? But I'm telling you, that's what they're saying in heaven right now. Stephen is up there, that blessed martyr. All the apostles who gave their lives for Christ is up there. All those who have already died in Afghanistan for Christ are up there. And they're saying, it's good up here. And you appreciate it even more if you've suffered for Christ. Even more when you've suffered. You're given more joy. And I know for us, we, we think more joy relates to more things. But get the heavenly perspective of more joy. The more you've suffered for Christ, you get more joy up there. Now, before I get a sad saint who wants to have a pity patty party, now take this and apply this to all their depression and oppression. The devil is a liar. You are not supposed to see your mental anguish, your sin, your struggle against the flesh as this kind of suffering. You are victorious over the flesh. You are a saint, not an ain't. Come on, somebody. You have been given victory, and God is in your mind day and night, and he fills you with the peace that passes understanding. Because let me just tell you, those who are in these situations aren't complaining like how you are about your situation. See, your situation and mine generally is not real Christian suffering. It is the consequences of bad decisions or what hurtful people are doing to us. Truly, I get it, and it's not fair in that sense. But we are to have a mindset above the clouds of the oppression of this world. We're supposed to be soaring with the eagles, okay? So don't take this scripture of suffering and then now say, oh, I'm just suffering for Jesus, Pastor. It was so hard what I went through. No, sufferings for Christ literally is somebody beating you, insulting you for the name of Christ. And if that is part of your suffering, then endure it because the mar endure it joyfully because the martyrs I'm talking about were being burned alive singing hymns. Some of you can't even sing a hymn right now. Come on. Some of you can't even praise the Lord right now because what you're going through. These people are, are being eaten alive singing hymns saying, thank God I'm the bread of God. Ignatius went to go get eaten alive by wild beasts and said, at least now I get to feel what communion feels like. I get to be the bread this time. 
That's literally what he said. I'm the, I am being bread offered to these lions as Christ offered himself to us. That's how they went, full of joy, full of peace. There was one man that was in a North Korean concentration camp that said, I never had a gloomy day. North Korean pastor concentration camp. Look it up. He said, I never had a gloomy day, though everything was gloomy in the natural because Jesus was his joy. Jesus was his peace. Jesus was his reward. Jesus was his glory. Amen? So I just want to make sure those of you suffering, I still got to give you a little spurring on here. Do not use this as an excuse to have a tear in your beer. Amen? Feast with Jesus. You are with him. He loves you. Celebrate with him. Overcome the battle of the mind through the renewing of the word. For those who suffer physical abuse because of Christ, for those who are being persecuted, this is for you. You will be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then he goes on to say not to suffer as a criminal. Let's go to our uh, closing passage that I had given you earlier. This passage here now is what I wanted us to see. As Vinny comes, please. Because though we may uh, have compassion on them, we don't want to feel sorry for them. God is giving them the chance to be courageous. And courage will be rewarded in heaven. True love that lays its life down for others will be rewarded in heaven. That's why Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, and the rest of these sins, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The coward, everybody get this, who denies Christ under the pains of death will go to hell if they don't repent. Unlike Islam, we do believe you can come back from that. As that scripture I read you, that demonic scripture I read before, says once you deny, it's too late. That's not what we believe. In the early church, during the worst persecutions, they had to rebaptize people who denied Christ during the Roman Empire, during those, those, those times. So the, yes, even if you deny Christ and you repent, you can be saved. But how many know that the sin of cowardice is in our culture right now? That sin of cowardice. And I want us to be encouraged by the boldness of, those, of the brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Because though we don't see our battle in flesh and blood as much as they do, there are principalities working behind the scenes to oppress us as Christians. I just want to give you a few examples of this in our culture. And I want to call you to being bold and courageous because the world is not worthy of you. Don't expect them to give you a pat on the back. Don't expect them to give you the loud cheers. If Billy Graham was here today, they probably wouldn't let him go to the Soldier Stadium and preach the gospel that he would preach. We are no longer accepted in our culture as having upright, dignified values. I want to give you a few examples. In our culture right now, the LGBTQ movement is now wanting every single one of you to bow to it or to be considered a bigot. Every one of you listening to me right now, if you agree with the traditional standard narrative of Jesus and the apostles that marriage is between one man and one woman, you are now hated by the culture. And so what are you going to do about it? I pray you have courage. I pray you learn how to sneak around on your job and have a Bible study. 
I pray, seriously, at high school campuses coming up, whether we have them or not this time around, who knows, but whenever they let you back around other students, I pray you learn how to start using what you have to let people know there's going to be a Bible study at your locker or in front of the flagpole or out at the park. I pray you use technology and the mind, young people, that God has given you and the artistic gifts for the things of God. Even when I played video games, you know what my handle was? Joe 316. You got to think about it, don't you? We're going to put out the gospel message, whether it's going to be sneaky like a snake, and I know that sounds like it can't be a good thing, but Jesus said it. You've got to be as wise as serpents and then as harmless as these doves. Be courageous. Be the one that knows when to speak against this agenda and how to speak about it. If they say it's Pride Month, and I know it just passed, it's Pride Month, we're all going to wear buttons. Can I wear the cross because that's what I'm proud of? You see what I'm saying? You've got to be wise. You've got to be able to infiltrate their ideas. You have to be able to do this on your jobs. Christians Businessmen Association started in a time where it was easy to gather businessmen together, but now we might have to do it under the cover of night, but we still need to gather as businessmen and find out how to support each other and especially the entrepreneurs. We need to start coming out with our lists again of the Christian businesses so that people know who to support. But we have to be careful because others may find it to dox. Oh, this is a Christian uh, dry cleaner. Everyone, everyone, they go to Metro Pray. Stop supporting them. This is a Christian coder. Silicon Valley, don't hire them. So there has to be a way in our culture that we can be here as salt and light and begin to make a difference because what they want for us is just to cower back and say, no, no, I don't really believe that. That's just what my church believes. The Catholic church is not even Catholic anymore. Can I hear an amen to that? If there's anybody they should excommunicate, it's someone who approves of abortion. And yet they couldn't even excommunicate our, our president, and he is the most abortion-loving president we've ever had. They are weak. Religious leaders are weak. You know what? I don't normally name names, but we need to start naming them. We've got to pray for the two largest Pentecostal denominations in America because they're in trouble right now. And I'm just saying this prophetically and graciously. Lord, guard my words not to sin against your people because there's so many good people in there. But the assembly of God... And the church of God in Christ are being infiltrated right now by agendas and by people who want to work against those long-standing conservative groups. And we need to pray for the assemblies of God. We need to pray for the Baptists. The Southern Baptists have not always done things right, but we need to pray for them because these major denominations are being infiltrated by people that do not want Christian worldview or Christian values. And those who have kept their ear to the theological curb, we are only a few apostates away before we ordain homosexuals in mainline Pentecostal denominations because it's already happening in non-denominational ones. So I'm not saying they're any better, but it's already happening. The other example, and I know we got to be uh, you know, short here. I've been long. Thank you for your patience. Is that what you do with your money 
is going to be very important in these end times because you are going to start, have to start choosing who to support and how to support. And trust me, I am the last one that's, that, that sends out boycott notices, boycott Target, boycott Starbucks. Some of you are still on that. I get it. But I'm not just saying that. What I'm talking about is how you store your wealth and what you do with it. We have got to wise up in this culture because what they're doing, Apple, Google, Amazon, they are using our wealth against us. So we need to start understanding how to store and use wealth so that it can be for the body of Christ. There was a church in our city that started a, out of their church, they started a bank to start funding the projects that God had for, for Christians and for small businesses. And a lot of people were against them, like, man, why is the church doing this, this, and this? I would rather the church be involved in the bank than the governor. I would rather a church, Christians, us be the board of the bank than Mary, uh, Mayor Heavyfoot slash Lightfoot. Are you listening? I'm not saying we have to mix the two. Everybody get this. We can be the church, and we can also work in a bank. We can be the church, and we can also be sworn in as president. We can be the church, and we can also be aldermen. Does everybody get it? Because the moment we start talking like this, they start saying, well, you're going to violate church and state, which, by the way, is a Christian principle. Whenever we violated that, Christians have seen that to be sin. Christians taught them that. Not the world, because the world always violates church and state. The world does. Communists do, as well as Muslims do, Hindus do. Christians are the only ones who started a true democracy by stepping out of the state and allowing the government to be different than the church. That's American Protestantism. Are you guys listening to me? Protestants came to America and developed a system of government, which I think is, is, is fine if we have the right people. But here's the thing. We don't have the right people in government anymore. We're swearing upon a book, and no one cares it's the Bible. We have a chaplain before the Congress, but nobody's really praying. What I'm saying is, is in our wealth and in our economy, our economic spending, is we need to begin to support the godly and the future we want for our children. Now, if you're asking me to go into details, I won't follow Christian economists and others, but my last example will be in education. Somebody say education. Some people call these the, the seven mountains of influence. I'm only just hitting on a few that the Lord has put on my heart for today's message to help protect us from persecution. Number one, we don't fall for the sexual perverted agenda. Number two, we guard our finances so if they try to bankrupt us, they can't. We have enough to survive, whether it's in stocks, our own businesses, or in our land, in our houses, okay? And then the third thing is we need the education to belong to the church again. You say, well, what do you mean, Joe? The priests are going to be over the private, uh, the public schools like they're over the private schools? No. What I'm saying is the principal is a Christian. And the Christian operates as a principal by Christian values. How many want Christian principles again? How many want Christian, um, what do they call the school board again? Christians on the school board. Christian uh, superintendents. And so this is where I want you to be careful as you pray because some of you don't want anything to do with the Babylonian system. We're all doing homeschool. Many of us feel that way. I get it. But what, but what some adults need to do is work in that system and be teachers and principals. If everybody homeschools like me, the public schools are lost. We've retreated. Let's just be honest and it's over. They, don't they have no influence and they don't belong to us and we have no say so they can do whatever they want. I can't have that in the church. I can't ever, you know, this is not a homeschooling church movement, okay? Some churches are like, everybody homeschool because the pastor homeschools, and you got to use this homeschool curriculum, and then they wonder why we, they call us a cult. 
You understand, we all, the women all got doilies on their head. We're wearing jeans. The women are wearing jean dresses. <laughs> no one cuts their hair anymore. Okay? We're all, we're all making organic honey. That's our jobs now. You know, something's going on, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying somebody has to be there. And, I, and I'll be honest with some of you parents. You need to know about your kids. But I have prayed, and my daughters don't even know this, about different times about sending them into high school to be missionaries for Jesus Christ. I have prayed about should I let them invade that school because I cannot only pray for it from the outside. I have to go from the inside too. Also with universities, we need to raise up our own. I get everything we can do on our own. It's already there. It's an option. We need to get better at it. But we also need to know that we need to have professors at Wright College. We need to have professors at Northeastern, Northwestern. And all of these schools need to be infiltrated by us as Christians because everybody get this in closing. How did they get out the closet to push us in the closet? They wanted to come in even when it was our turf, didn't they? How many know what I'm talking about? How many know that back, what, 20, 30 years ago, if you were in a business, more than likely your boss went to church, but homosexuals still worked there. Muslims still worked there, didn't they? Even though more than likely the boss was a Christian. How many were a part of public schools? I even went to a public school, even though my, my, my kids were, I mean, my parents were Christian. And then guess what? They said, well, we'll do it. We'll do it. And little by little, what did they take over? Finances. What did they take over? Education, our sexuality. And now we're sitting back as Christians and we're honestly asking ourselves, is this where we retreat now? And I'm saying, H-E double hockey sticks, no. We are not retreating now. Do you understand? We are not retreating. We are revamping and we are going to storm and take the gates of hell. But just because I'm praying about it doesn't mean you've got to pray about it. Maybe you, maybe your kids got to all stay homeschooled. Maybe mine will as well. I get it. Some of us, you know, just need to do what we got to do. But, but I'm looking for some radicals. I'm looking for some entrepreneurs. I'm looking for some high school students that want to meet me at each one of these corners right here and start winning their, their high school for Jesus. Because I want, let me end on the shouts right here. I want everyone who has come to this church out of a public school and you're under 25 years old, come stand up here. You are under 25 and you have come from a public school. Come stand up here. Look at this. Stand and face the people here, please. Stand and face the people. You see, it's not the time to back down over our public schools. It's our time to be courageous. These brothers started Christian clubs at their school. What school did you go to? Sures. And was there a Christian club when you got there? Uh, no. And then what did you do? We started one. Come on, my brother. Started a Christian club. Each one of these young people got saved out of what we would call a Babylonian system. Now, if, if I had time, I could say, how many of you work for a secular job, a company, secular boss? Everybody would be standing eventually, right? How many of us live in a state with a secular governor? How many live in a city with a secular mayor? So my thing is this, what are we going to do? Are we going to retreat? 
Are we going to retire or refire this thing up, baby? It's time for us to invade the enemy-held territory and take back what the devil stole from us. And if God could do it in the young people, God can do it on your business. God can do it in your community. God can do it in your job. Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus. Somebody shout, use me, Lord. Woo, come on, use me, Jesus. Thank you, young people. You may go back to your family or your seats. Band, would you come, please? I'm tired of hearing about how Google is so homosexual, so secular. I want to overwhelm Google.